Good morning. Just one announcement, one confession. We'll, we'll start, we'll do announcement first. Um, ladies, thank you. Thank you for making breakfast, serving breakfast. Uh, that was, that was really good. That was really good. That was a great spread. So we just wanted to say thank you, uh, I guess on behalf of the men and the boys, and yes. So thank you very much for that. Um, number two, confession. As a preacher, sometimes you guys look at babies and make faces at them, and it's distracting. And it's, it's really, I'm just like, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Not at me, not the baby. I mean, I, and as Jacob was giving announcements, I'm looking at two different babies making faces at him and doing the exact same thing. So I, I get it. So there's my confession. We... Uh, babies are distracting sometimes, but like in a good way. So uh, anyway, don't let me catch you staring at a baby this sermon. No, I'm just joking. Uh, okay. Genesis 1, 6 through 19, days 2 through 4, entitled Creation Calls. I'm going to, <coughs> excuse me, read. There's our passage today. Again, Genesis 1, 6 through 19. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. Uh, Heavenly Father... God, as we look at these three days of creation week and um, looking into the New Testament about creation, our views of creation, our views of you as the creator, Lord, we, we pray that this message, um, God, that it would give us application for, uh, for our lives, Lord that you would apply this to our heart, that you would apply your word to our heart, that, that even in a passage that just doesn't have direct application, 
that the implication of who you are and what you've done and what that implies for humans, that those implications would, would speak to each one of our hearts, Lord, so that we may apply that to become more faithful to you and to honor Christ with our lives, God. Lord, we ask that help from your spirit and word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week's focus. Okay. <clears throat> Last week we focused on day one of creation, and as stated, we're going to observe days two through four today. One of the goals for today's sermon is to show how the beauty of creation, and it is beautiful, was never intended to be a means to an end for our enjoyment. By that, I mean God did not create the splendor that we see all around us in mountains and prairies and oceans and in the heavens in order for us to find fulfillment in them. Rather, he created it so that the wonder and grandeur of his work, it would direct our hearts and our minds to acknowledge him as the grand architect of it all, as the creator. And in turn, we would seek to find our fulfillment, not in creation, but in the one who created it. We would seek to find our fulfillment in him. Because creation was never intended to be worshipped. It was meant to direct our worship toward him. Along with that, we will see that humanity's perception of creation, and particularly Our view of God as creator is distorted as a consequence from sin. And not only we as Christians, but even, now final point, not only we as Christians, but creation itself is awaiting the arrival of the one who's going to renew it, who's going to recreate it, who will restore all things. So our three points for today is creation is intended to direct our worship toward God. Sin distorts our understanding of God, and creation awaits its renewal. Point one, creation is intended to direct our worship toward God. It's hard to argue that the beauty of creation is not captivating. From radiant sunrises to breathtaking sunsets, Peaks of the highest mountains, depths of greatest canyons that we can possibly imagine. And the the beauty of creation is something that we can marvel at for hours. We we plan vacations. Think about this. Every year we plan vacations just so we can spend massive amounts of our trip just staring at the earth, right? It sounds weird when you say it out loud like that, but you and I know it's wonderful. (laughs) Mom, Dad, what are we doing on vacation? We're just going to sit in the chair and just stare out into the ocean. That'll be great. We've been been waiting a year and a half to do this. We've saved up for months just so we could stare at the earth. Now that my family and I uh, have lived here for all four seasons in Leavenworth, and we've experienced so many breathtaking views here, it makes sense why so many people around the world come to visit Leavenworth as a destination. 
And it's not, it's not just for sports and recreation. It's also because it's beautiful here. And, and yet Leavenworth is just one small speck on God's green planet where we can experience such grandeur in creation. There's thousands of places around the world that are worth seeing in which we can just marvel at it. Creation is captivating. And yet some, somehow when, when we gaze at the splendor of creation or even captivated by the splendor of creation, though it's spectacular to look at and creates some sort of emotional response within us, there's something that leaves us with a feeling of inadequacy, a, a, a longing, if you will, that, that is almost difficult to put into words. Because somehow, even though we are able to be completely blown away by these views, they're still unable to fill our desire, our, our yearning, our longing. Jordan wrote a paper in McDivitt on what is beauty, and I'm stealing a quote from it. It's a really good paper. I told him I was going to steal it. He said, steal away. I don't even know if I'm getting this guy's last name correctly, but Peter Creep or Kreft summarized this void, this, this longing perfectly when, when, when he wrote about our desire for beauty. He, Peter says, we, we don't want merely to see beauty, we want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. And so, I agree with him. So the human response to that dilemma is to move on to the next scene, hoping it will provide what the last ones were unable to, which the last ones could not, which is contentment, fulfillment. Loved ones, may I suggest to you this morning, on the other side of the door, which provides the fulfillment that we're all longing for, cannot be found in the wonder of creation. And the reason it cannot is because it wasn't created with that purpose. The beauty of creation does intend to create a response within us. But that response is expected to direct our gaze toward the one who created it. So that we might be satisfied in him. So in other words, on the other side of that door which Christians, those in Christ who have left this world and went to the other side of the door, on the other side of the door is to be in the presence of God and to behold his glory. And we're going to see that in our passage today as well throughout the rest of scripture that we'll look at today. That no matter how beautiful creation is, it is meant to direct us to its creator and to gaze and contemplate his glory. So we'll start with day two. On day two, God separates the sky from the sea. A notable feature about day two 
It's the only day that God doesn't declare good. He doesn't evaluate. I mean, there's no evaluation of it like the other days. I'm not sure why not. I don't know. My best guess is because there was nothing newly created as there were in day three, three through six. Day two, we see, is, was just a separation of sky and sea. And I don't know for certain. As I researched other people's answers, though, they all said that. So I have to be right because we all agree. I don't know. One of my odder suggestions, which I, I wondered if I should say this morning, is uh, biblically speaking in Scripture, the seas are seen as chaotic and even evil and full of monsters and sea creatures and don't have nightmares. So maybe that's why. I don't know. But probably because nothing was newly created. Now, that's, that's just a notable feature, but it leads into uh, an important point that I want to walk out further about day two and about uh, specifically there not being evaluation. Because when we look at what's called the creation formula for creation week in Genesis 1, we have four things. We have an announcement, God said, a command, let there be, an action, and God made, and God created, or it was so. And then finally, we have an evaluation made by God about what he did. And God saw that it was good. It's known as the creation formula, but it's not on day two. At least the evaluation. He just doesn't evaluate the second day like he does the others. Now, why that's intriguing to me is that the writer of Psalm 19 reverses the evaluation of this creation formula of day two. So, so in other words, in Psalm 19, it isn't God making the evaluation about the heavens. Psalm 19 is the heavens making an evaluation about God. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky... Above proclaims his handiwork. And the heavens and the sky are what God separates from the water on day two. And here in Psalm 19, they're the ones making a declaration, but their declaration is about God, the one who made them. They, they declare, they proclaim. Metaphorically speaking, the heavens and the skies are like preachers. They proclaim a message for all to see. Not, not to hear, to see. And, and their message is this. God did this. God is responsible for, for this handiwork. Which means day after day, the heavens are staring down at us, pleading for us to look up to them and acknowledge that the glory of day two in Genesis 1 can only be attributed to the one who created it. And in turn, it's grander, the grander of the heavens, the skies, the sunset, the, it, that marvelous beauty should lead us. It, it shouldn't end with just staring at it and saying, what a beautiful sunset. The sunset should lead us to contemplate and find joy in the one who created it. That is what creation is made for, to point us to God. We'll get more into that point in day four. I'm just going to nerd out in day three. 
On day three, God formed the land masses of the earth. But notice something on day three. God also told the earth to sprout vegetation with plants and trees that bear fruit. And it was so. If you remembered from last week, I said people who believe the earth is old say that what takes place on each day had to have taken longer than a literal 24-hour period because of its just natural habitat. In other words, for a seed to become a plant and a plant to bear fruit, that takes longer than 24 hours. We know that. But here's a problem with viewing the sequence of events in creation as chronologically along with that type of scientific approach. The plants that are bearing fruit, they don't have sunlight yet. And vegetation needs sunlight in order to grow and survive. So do you, do you see the problem? Genesis says God didn't create the sun until day four. But here we are on day three, and the plants are producing fruit. So if we want to hold to some type of evolutionary scientific schedule, well, we, we run into a problem here. Because if we take the Bible at its word, God created fruit-bearing plants before he created life-giving sun. That doesn't mean I'm right as a young earther. This is why creation debates are fun. <laughs> I'm sure an old earther, if you're an older, you're probably in your mind, you're like, no, da-da-da-da-da. You want to announce something probably right now as a rebuttal. And then we just go back and forth. It's also, and that, that, that was the point of last week. It's why it's important to remember to be charitable when debating creation because the Bible just simply isn't clear on the date of the earth, on the age of the earth. My point is young earthers ain't the only ones with a problem that they got to solve. Okay, day four. God replaced the light from day one with the luminaries. The sun, the moon, and the stars. Luminaries is just a fancy way of sounding smart and saying the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, we understand, we can see, I don't think anyone disagrees that, that those were put in place to give off light and separate the day from evening. The Bible says that. But they also are meant to serve us with another purpose that I believe goes overlooked. And that's in verse 14. God said, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. In other words, the luminaries in the heavens are placed there in order to be used as markers which indicate the time of the year. That's nothing novel. They're just, they're a calendar. That's not what's overlooked. What's overlooked is the ultimate purpose of their time-telling ability, which we don't get in Genesis. But, but the, I, I'm arguing that the ultimate purpose of their time-telling ability is actually to direct our worship toward God. Now, that may sound crazy to an astronomer, but we're going to look at Leviticus 23 and see that that's what they do. 
The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals. Same Hebrew word for seasons. These are my appointed festivals or seasons, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. The Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, look at it, begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. The festival of weeks from the day after the Sabbath, verse 16, count all 50 days. The festival of trumpets, on the first day of the seventh month, you're to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Day of atonement, verse 27, the tenth day of the seventh month is a day of atonement. You see, God gave his people appointed times throughout the year to gather for worship. But how would they be able to tell when those times were unless they had something to indicate, which he places on day four. He places the sun, the moon, and the stars in the heavens so that humans have a calendar to worship God. That's what these are for. Hey, on this day, go worship God because of what he's done. Meet together. Imagine that, having a day that God's people are supposed to meet together for worship. That didn't stop in the Old Testament, right? The luminaries, the sun, the moon, and the stars are a call to worship. That's why I belabor the point that creation is meant to direct our worship toward God. Why does this matter? Where do you this morning fit into all of this? Because I'm, maybe you do. Certain, not everybody has an idea what any of those festivals might even be or, or the purpose of why, why we're going through that this morning. You might be thinking to yourself, why did I skip my hike this morning in order to come in and hear about this? But there it is. Loved one. If you're asking yourself why you skipped recreation in order to come and worship God, then you're already applying the point of the message. You're assembling with God's people on the Lord's day is the point of the sermon. It's not the only point. The point is that that God's creation is a call to worship. It's not an excuse to skip it. Sometimes the application of the text is to love your neighbor. Sometimes it's to, uh, to do the right thing. Sometimes it's to think noble, joyful, pure thoughts. Sometimes it's to lay your life down for your wife. Sometimes it's to submit to your husband. Okay. They can't see that on the audio. <laughs> it's not going to be as funny. Sometimes the application is to read your Bible. Sometimes it's to pray. Sometimes it's to confess your sin. But sometimes, 
Sometimes the application is just to worship God. That's it. And we may not use the sun and the moon as a calendar anymore, but I'm pretty sure we are quite aware when God's people are supposed to gather and worship him as a sacred assembly. And if not, that's the Lord's day. Point two is going to get a little more uncomfortable. Sin distorts our understanding of God. If you really want to ruffle the feathers of an atheist, you can tell them that the Bible says every person, no matter if they're an atheist or not, is keenly aware that God is the one who made the universe. They know it. They know it for a fact. And if you've ever met a staunch atheist, then you know how preposterous that's going to sound to them. That's beside the point. More, more importantly, I want us to see how, how the Bible can say every individual, including atheists, knows that God created the earth, and yet they can still refuse to believe it. In other words, how can someone know God exists and still become convinced that he doesn't? It's confusing. Well, the short answer is sin. Sin is responsible for blinding humanity and distorting our view of God. And here's where it ties into today's message, especially distorting the view of God as creator. So we have to read Romans 1, 18 through 32. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and, they, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in their desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason... God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God... God delivered them over to a corrupt mind 
so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even applaud others who do. And practice them. What is Paul saying? Number one, creation is visible proof and evidence that God exists. And therefore, he says everyone is without an excuse for their unbelief. And we'll put that into the context, into a little context in regard to Judgment Day when God returns and judges the good and the wicked. But Lord, here, here's, here's the excuse. But Lord, if, if I only would have known or would have been given just, just a bit more evidence, just some piece of evidence, I would have believed. The Bible says, no, you wouldn't have. A favorite preacher of our time, Alistair Begg, picked up on this in a recent sermon I heard. He said, people always say, if I just had one more bit of proof, just one more piece of evidence, I would believe. He says, no, they wouldn't. And the reason being is because the problem humans have in regard to believing is not an intellectual issue. It is a moral one. Because intellectually speaking, the Bible says you already have the evidence that's required for proof, and yet you still refuse to accept it. In fact, not only do you refuse to accept it, but you actually suppress the truth. And how do people suppress the truth? Verse 18, people suppress the truth by their unrighteousness, by sin. You see, to become a believer in, in that God's a creator, that Christ is a savior, the Bible doesn't require you to give up your intellect. It requires you to give up your sin. But the world isn't interested in that. And therefore, verse 25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship what has been created instead of the creator. And as a result... God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts. Paul says in Romans 1 that the focal point of their desires, what does he address first? Sexual immorality. I find that very enlightening because it provides the answer to why our society has become so sex-crazed. What's even more intriguing is that the Bible says it's because they refuse to acknowledge God as creator, as creator. It doesn't just say they refuse to accept that Jesus rose from the dead. It says they refuse to accept God as their creator. You see why the doctrine of creation is so important? Because here in Romans 1, Paul says, when a society refuses to acknowledge God as creator, he delivers them over to sexual impurity. 
here we are. Here we are. Here comes the uncomfortable reality. That's not already uncomfortable enough. The sexual sin that God hands them over to, according to Romans 1, is shameful acts of women with other women and men with other men. Now, our, our, our culture does not think that that type of immorality is shameful. But the Bible says it's a direct result of sin and a depraved mind. And yet our society actually identifies this rebellion as pride. Verse 32, although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even applaud those who practice them. Loved ones, we can, as Christians, we can and we should be kind, meek, gentle, we cannot applaud nor approve what God regards as sin. And, and, and if we put our society, our modern society, our modern culture into the context of Romans 1 or just blend them together, the reality of the matter of the time that we're living in and the culture that we're living in is that any time a society becomes enamored and overtaken by these types of sexual depravity, it has been given over to the judgment of God. Do you understand this? Do you understand what Paul's saying in Romans 1? He said, when a society becomes consumed with same-sex relations, it is because it is under God's wrath. We shouldn't be applauding that. We shouldn't find pride in that. Where did it all start? Where did this depraved culture originate? How did we get here? Paul says... They refuse to acknowledge God as creator. Verse 28, and since they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind. Loved ones, this is why having a biblical worldview is so important and why our biblical worldview as Christians begins with in the beginning God created. Because if we get off from that path, as they do in Romans 1, we will inevitably become more susceptible to find other paths that are even further from God. And as, as humanity, we have strayed so far, all of us. I'm not, I'm not just the people in Romans 1. We're Romans 1 in our heart. We're all corrupt. We're all depraved. None of us sought God. We've all strayed so far from his paths <laughs> that we've contributed to the corruption. Not singling anyone out. But we've strayed so far that Paul actually personifies creation itself in Romans 8. He says... Even creation is groaning for its Savior's return. 
And so what is the answer? How, how, how can this world be renewed and restored to its original glory? That, that paradise that God creates here in creation week and days one through six and then rest. How, how, how can a society who has been turned over to a depraved mind be recreated into a people who truly flourish? Loved ones, the only answer to that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only answer. The only way a people, a society can be transformed is when they bow before the cross of Jesus Christ. They are reborn through the Holy Spirit. They repent from their sin and they begin to follow Christ with their life. They pick up their cross and they die to self and they follow Christ as Lord. Creation awaits its renewal. Well, we'll end on this point. Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption of the sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. <laughs> to summarize what Paul is saying and just to think about what he's saying, it's pretty crazy to think about. Paul says... Humanity has become so vile that the earth is groaning to, 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 for it all to be over. It's painfully and, pain, and patiently just awaiting for the return of Christ. In, in short, the earth, we're, we're so evil and wicked and grotesque that the earth is fed up with us. And think, think what this says. Creation recognizes its need. Creation knows its master. Creation even obeys its master. Hey, here's a fun exercise. You go home this week, find one time in the Bible when creation refuses to do anything God commanded it to do. I couldn't think of one example. When God tells creation to do something, it does it. It knows its master, it obeys its master. One could almost argue that creation could be used as an example for us to do the same. Loved ones, when we look at, when we look at creation in Genesis 1, and we look at recreation in Romans 8, which we're waiting for, even the redemption that is coming. It says that, says that not only creation in Genesis 1 points us to worship God, but recreation points us to worship God. Creation continually directs us to worship him for who he is and what he's done. But here's the good news for us. Jesus is not just the savior of creation, is he? He's the savior of sinners like us. 
like you and me. He's the savior of sinners who have rejected God as creator. He's the sinners who have rejected Jesus as savior. I'm sorry, he's the savior who has who who saves sinners who have rejected Jesus as savior. Sinners who have committed uh, the most vile acts and, and of, of Romans 1 and have no justification other than I did it because I wanted to. He's a savior of them as well. He's a savior for them. He's a savior th- throughout the entire Bible for any sins for that matter. Jesus saves sinners. I got a lot. Well, that's why we sing the song. My sins, they are great, but his mercy is more. Loved ones, there is a savior for you today. A savior who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounds in covenantal love. A savior who is willing to forgive all of your sins even of unbelief. A Savior who knew there was nothing we could do about our sin and therefore came down to take our sin upon him and receive the due punishment that we deserved. A Savior who bled in order to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And so... In celebration of Reformation week, last week, just like creation does, we proclaim to the glory of God, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that, and I pray for the children, even teenagers, I pray that as they're just walking back to their car and they see a beautiful point in Leavenworth or wherever they are or on a trip in the next upcoming weeks, they look at it and they say, hey, that's supposed to remind us to worship God. Lord, I pray that you, that, that you would also remind us personally of that, Lord. All things you create and what is, are, are to point to you and where true beauty rests and the infinite, eternal, majestic God that you are, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, and, and I pray that we, we don't treat those who still live in a Romans 1 context in their culture as our enemies, as if once we weren't enemies of you, Lord. But God, that we would tell them, yes, it's wrong, but there's a Savior in Jesus Christ for you today. Turn to him. And we pray that they would. In Christ's name, amen.